Welcome to the 2021 edition of Court of Opinion. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stern. Well, new Welcome year. to Court of Opinion. New NBA, not really, but week three. Yeah, honestly, it's uh, it's been interesting because it's pretty early in the season, but it almost seems like there's already been a ton of games and we're already kind of starting to see a little bit about teams collective identities at this point might be a little too soon to tell who's going to miss the playoffs and who's not, but we're definitely starting to see some trends emerge. Yeah. And you have the teams who were doing well at the beginning or at least seemingly well at the beginning who are now reverting to the mean and in reverse people who weren't doing so well, who are starting to also revert to the mean. Uh, so it is definitely too early to tell, but like you said, some trends that we're able to see. So let's get into it. We don't have to start this week about any James Harden news because there hasn't been any James Harden news, which has been refreshing to see. So let's get into some of the team records that we've been seeing. So first one, the team I think everybody expected to immediately mesh and do well to start. The Nets are three and four, and they just lost to a Wizards team that was one and five, giving Russell Westbrook his first win of the season as a Wizard. What's your take on the Nets? To be honest with you, it's it's really a baffling team to me to watch right now because you basically look at this team and there's so many highlights all over the place being put everywhere about amazing things that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are doing. And they are killing it by all accounts. I mean, Kyrie right now is getting 26.8 points per game, 6.3 assists per game on excellent percentages 38.9% from three, 48.4% from the field. If he were to do this for the entire year, you'd probably say this was the best season of his entire career, if he could actually stay healthy for at least half of this season. So it's not him. And then you look at Kevin Durant and you have a similar story. The guy is hitting on all cylinders too. He's averaging 28 points a game. His percentages are solid. His rebounds are down. Sorry, his assists a little bit. His usage is down a little bit but overall very efficient and he's scoring great. It seems like for whatever reason, this team is losing a lot of games on defense. They're getting a ton of points. They're scoring great. The chemistry on offense has been great between Durant and Irving, but it seems like even though they have the defensive talent on the roster on paper, they still haven't meshed defensively in terms of chemistry. They still don't know yet how to execute a proper defense. They don't know how to switch properly and teams that, have better ball movement and better playmakers tend to be able to get them out of position often and find open looks. And when you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving scoring a ton of points, but you're allowing that many more on the other end, that's going to be the recipe for losing games. Yeah. I mean, there's several layers to this. First of all, I don't think there's a story here. I think they're just a new team with too high of expectations. You think back to the heat when they joined forces uh, back in 2010, people thought, Oh, they're going to be, 82 and 0, this team's going to just crush everybody in their path. They started off, I think, 9 and 8, and then went on to go to the NBA Finals, losing to the Mavericks. But everyone is expecting KD, Kyrie to dominate. Like you said, if they stay healthy, obviously there's going to be the rest component for both of them in the day and age that we are now, where everybody rests. I think KD and Kyrie have already sat out each a game, at least, and probably more. KD now because he had exposure to the coronavirus is going to be sitting out for the next week. So there's another four games that he's going to miss. So depth is going to be an issue for them as well, because Spencer Dinwiddie is probably out for the year with a partially torn ACL, although they hope he could be back for a late playoff push. Um, so overall, I don't think it's a huge issue. I still expect the Nets to make the playoffs. You also have to think though, from a defensive standpoint, like you mentioned, their coach is Steve Nash. The assistant coach is Mike D'Antoni, both of which have never been known for their defense. So obviously the team is meshing on offense defensively. I don't know the assistant coach that they have that's in charge of that, but from a hierarchical standpoint, Steve Nash, likely his number one in command with Mike D'Antoni, both not known for defense. So you don't expect them to be focusing on that side of the ball as much. Yeah, I agree. I think that for the Nets, a lot of teams right now, one of the reasons why it's really hard to gauge this point in the season 
the projections that a team's going to have at the end of the year is that a lot of teams are in vastly different positions. And the Nets are in an especially unique position because they combine a lot of these factors. One of them being teams that already know what they have that made deep playoff runs are mitigating their rest factor to avoid injuries. Teams that had lots of new additions and young players are still trying to integrate new pieces to figure out how they fit and what rotations they want to use. And the Nets kind of have both of those things going on at once where they have players coming back from injuries that they're trying to make sure they keep healthy for the whole season. But they also have a ton of that never played together that they're still trying to integrate. So I think right now they're not really as concerned with the outcomes of these games or their record as much as they are trying to feel out which lineups are the best lineups for them and figure out what schemes are going to be best for them. So at the end of the day, I don't think they're very concerned with what position they enter the playoffs in because they know that when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving want to score, they're going to get their buckets as it, uh, as it they've shown to this point in the season. So I don't think that's ever going to be an issue scoring the ball. So I think for them, it's just figuring out the right personnel. And I have no concern that they're going to figure that out as long as they can remain healthy. Yeah. And I mean, I think the bigger story here though, with this game was that the wizards are finally winning and they won their first game that Russell Westbrook played in and he happened to not get a triple double, which means that he was not trying to be as erratic as he normally is and be everywhere at once. And instead probably trusted Thomas Bryant, Rui uh, Achimura, and some of the other guys to grab some rebounds because he had five rebounds in that game. They barely won, but the reason why I think they did win is because Russell only committed two turnovers. Bradley Beal only committed two turnovers. A lot of these games that they've lost where Russell has put up exorbitant numbers have been because Russell has committed five, six, four turnovers for the game. So some smarter decision-making on his part and a missed shot by Kevin Durant at the end for the Wizards to win. But it's good to see that the Wizards are doing well after that trade. Yeah, I think that, honestly, that's what it usually has been the story for Russell Westbrook throughout his entire career. He's an amazing talent. And on any given play, he can beat any individual defender. And he can do certain things that only players like him can do that you just can't teach. You need to have that different gear level of athleticism to be able to pull it off. But it seems that it's always been his decision-making where it almost seems that his faith in his own ability leads him astray and winds up taking a shot that's way too difficult or making a pass that's not a smart pass and he ends up turning it over. And that ends up being what costs him a lot of games. So I think you're completely right when you say that him mitigating his turnovers is going to be key for the Wizards to be able to turn it around and play well all year long. I honestly don't know, based on what they have right now, that the Wizards will make the playoffs, even if Westbrook does turn it around, just because their depth is really that bad. And it seems like defensively, they still really can't get any stops. The Nets still shot the ball great. They still had 28 points from Durant and 30 from Irving. So it's not like they were stopping anybody out there. It just so happens that they were able to outscore them by one extra play they were able to make one fewer mistake. But generally speaking, you play a game like this, you're probably going to lose. So you can't give up 120 plus points a game and expect that you're going to win most of those games. So I would expect for the, the Wizards probably to miss the playoffs this year. Yeah, and people are already talking about, well, is Russell going to be shopped again? Is Beal going to end up being shopped because he's has the option to not play there next year? So we'll and see. now that you have Giannis off the table, I mean – Exactly. With with Giannis staying with the Bucks, that changes the entire dynamic of the trade board for the Heat, which were the biggest suitors for Beal before. So, and you know that the Heat actually have a lot of pieces that would probably entice the Wizards for a young rebuild. They've already got some young pieces right now that they're working with. So it would honestly seem like a trade that on paper might work for both teams. Yeah, but I mean, with a player being on the final year of an expiring contract, it might be good for a playoff push team to pick up Beal and give up some of their younger pieces to put them over the top. But well, I'm sure like it would they- be a sign and trade. It would definitely be the kind of situation where I don't think any team would trade for Bradley Beal and give up lots of assets without some kind of assurance that he planned to stay there. I don't think that any team would probably be willing to do that. Um, I know that 
we did see the Raptors do that, and it did work out for them. But Bradley Beal isn't Kawhi Leonard, and Kawhi Leonard and did it was wind up leading. Exactly. Yeah. And Kawhi Leonard did end up leading in the end. So I really don't see a team forking it over for Bradley Beal on just a half-season rental. So I think that that's why it's only going to be a few teams in the running for this, because it's only going to be the teams that Bradley Beal would agree to sign an extension with off of that. Yeah, well, off to another team in the East. The Sixers are 5-1 and one and leading the East. Uh, my biggest takeaway from this is Ben Simmons is still not shooting any threes. Still not. He's almost averaging, though, <laughs> close to a triple-double. I saw double. him make one. I did see him make one the other day. He did Everyone against the Magic. Everyone made a really big deal about it. Yeah, he did against the Magic, uh, but he's averaging close to a triple-double with 13, 7, and 10. Tobias is also having a decent year, but really the difference maker I've seen for the 76ers has been Seth Curry. It appears that being with his father-in-law has uh, elevated Seth's game. And based on his current stats right now, he's shooting 56% from the field, 51% from three, and 100% from free throws. So he might join the 50-50-100 club, not even the 50-40-90 club. If he keeps this up, which would outdo his splash bro over in Golden State. The takeaway I have, though, from like a detraction standpoint is Danny Green is shooting 28% from three. He is continuing the slump that he had in the bubble and does not look like the touted free agent acquisition or rather trade acquisition that the Sixers were expecting him to be coming into this year. Yeah, the thing is, I think that Danny Green's disappointment has honestly been saved by the fact that they've gotten much better production than they expected, or at least than anyone else expected, out of players like Seth Curry, who's averaging 16 points a game, and players like Tyrese Maxey, who as a rookie is giving them solid minutes off the bench. I think that their wing depth is actually pretty solid, even with Danny Green playing pretty bad. And it's honestly really impressive to me that Ben Simmons statistically has essentially taken a step back in almost every aspect. If you're looking at statistical performance, you can't argue that Ben Simmons is one of the top 15 players in the league. You really can't. No. It seems right now, if you're looking at this team, that Seth Curry matters more to the success of this team than Ben Simmons does. And that's just the truth. I mean, I know Ben Simmons is the big name. He's the big star or whatever. But in reality, Seth Curry is what's driving this turnaround more than anything. The spacing that he's providing is giving Embiid and different slashers and other shooters room to work with. What they had before was just congestion everywhere. It just didn't work. And I think that you got to give credit to Daryl Morey again, because this guy always seems to, he, he offers a guy that you basically think, well, he's overpaying for this guy. This guy's really not that good. I mean, he was solid in the role he was, but you're really going to give him this money and, and give him a bigger role? He did the same thing with James Harden when he signed him when he was just a sixth man on the, on the Thunder. Everyone was like, you're going to pay this guy like basically franchise player money? He's never even started. And he's like, yes. And here you go. Again, Seth Curry, another amazing find. And it's also the position that he puts them in because the Mavericks had Seth Curry and they were using him pretty well. He had a lot of success with them as well. But it's just that he seems to find ways to put players together that seem to complement one another really, really great. He's a great team builder. So it's honestly been great for them. And I think that if you're a Sixers fan, you've probably got to be wondering, what can you get for Ben Simmons? Because if you're five and one right now, and you're only getting this level of production from Ben Simmons, I know he gives you amazing defense, but you could potentially find a player that would be a better fit alongside these guys that would probably make a better impact and still get solid return for it. Cause a lot of teams seem to think that they can unlock Ben Simmons's real potential. So I think that right now the 76ers are doing about as good as they could have hoped. Yeah. I, I think they'll still be in the top four. I don't expect them to lead the East the entire time, but it is interesting to see them be at the top. And I do think that it, all goes to Daryl Morey. He's a big proponent of uh, analytics and using analytics to try to figure out who meshes well with who. And I think on paper, the Sixers had a lot of good 
pieces last year, but those pieces didn't mesh well together, like you were pointing out. To another team in the East, the Heat are two and three after losing to the Mavs this weekend by 10. What are your thoughts on the Heat and their start to the season? Well, honestly, I'm kind of surprised to see it just because even though you have Jimmy Butler missing the majority of the games and Jimmy's hurt, you would still expect them to compete at a higher level than they have to this point. The shooting that they had offensively against the Mavericks was just inexcusable. They hadn't hit a single three through two quarters and didn't hit their first three until Duncan Robinson made one in the third, which is, you can't, you, I mean, you can't win like that when you're a team that relies on that shot essentially, because they, they essentially live and die by this shot. They are going to take that shot seemingly 20 times a game on average. So if they're not going to make at least 30% of those, they're probably not going to win those games. And it seems like right now they've had a lot of issue getting consistent production. They've had maybe one guy have a great game and then all the other guys did terrible. And then the next game, it'll be a different guy that has a breakout game and then the other ones regress. So it seems that right now with all the different rotations they've changed, they've played a bunch of different lineups. I honestly don't know why they're starting more Harkless at all because he I, I don't know what they see in him. He hasn't contributed anything positive. I don't even know if he's made a single shot at this point. So I, I don't know what they're doing with Mo Harkless. I think they should probably at this point experiment with Casey Akpala and see what, they, what he could give them. He honestly looked really good in the preseason. He moved great laterally defensively. He took on the challenge of guarding Zion and looked really, really great doing it. He looks like a player that's ready now, at least more than Mo Harkless is. But honestly, um, I think that the Heat aren't really concerned about the record because I know that's Spolstra. He generally knows what he's got. I think that he's really just tinkering with his lineups to see what is the best lineup to put out there and get a feel for different additions and figure out what roles he's going to assign these players to. Jay Crowder, I think they're realizing, was a bigger loss than they expected. He did a lot of things for them that didn't show up on the stat sheet that now you're trying to fill that with multiple different players rather than just one guy who can fill in and do all the things that he did. So they have to figure it out and they honestly have to continue to grow together too. They're a very young team who honestly relies a lot on production from young guys who up to this point are relatively unproven guys. So they're gonna have to show some semblance of consistency, especially while Jimmy Butler's out, Bam is gonna have to step up and earn that contract and take on that leadership role and steady the ship when Jimmy's not there. At this point, Bam has to be a leader and he can't just be the guy who's co-captain when Jimmy's there. He's got to step up and be that guy who gets everybody else steady. Because it seems like when Jimmy's not in, people get frantic. So he's got to become that leader and step in and start showing that he's worth that contract. Yeah, and to further your points, I just think that they look exhausted out there. And when Jimmy and Goran are both in, they don't look like themselves. Um, and I think if those vets are really that tired and you are tinkering with those lineups, then they should just completely pull the plug on playing the vets for a couple weeks. And I agree. Give the, give the young guys their minutes and allow those guys to rest See for what a few you have. weeks. Yeah. Right. No, no point in having them play half-ass and then you take them out in the second half because, oh, I'm actually not good to go. Like, I started the game, I wanted to, but then, oh, man, I actually can't finish the game. That takes everybody out of their rhythm because then you, you started with a game plan and now you have to finish with a completely different one. You have to be able to, and as a coach too, this is a habit that you need to build for young players. You need to be able to execute a game plan that you prepared for over 48 minutes. And when you start out with X game plan because you were expecting this player to be there and now you got to scrap it, throw it out and improvise, that's honestly not good for anybody. It's, it's just, it makes you less prepared. So I think it would be better that you just say, hey, look, Butler, his ankle's not right. Dragic just came back from foot surgery. All right, we're going to arrest these guys. They're veteran guys. They're 30 plus years old. We need to figure out what we have with these new pieces. We're going to let Tyler Hero and Bam take their lumps. We're going to figure out that pick and roll. That would be deadly if they figured it out. And we're going to let our veteran guys heal up. And when it's time, we'll reintegrate everyone. Because either way, what they're doing right now is haphazard anyway. 
Yeah, and they showed that they could win a difficult game after getting destroyed by the Milwaukee Bucks by 47 points. They then come back and beat them by a considerable margin. So the young guys clearly can beat whoever they want, and it, they do I mean, have Bam what it takes to win. looked like a different win. guy that game. What right. I don't understand is Bam Adebayo is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This guy, you can look at him, and he can look like two completely different players depending on the game that you're watching. There are some times that he gets this look and aggression in his eye and he does certain things that you're like, damn, there is no way a guy of his size and weight should be able to handle the ball and dribble like that and finish like that. Oh my God, why doesn't he do that every time? And then there's other games where he'll literally catch the ball with a guy who's like 6'3 and 50 pounds less than him in the post right underneath the basket and he doesn't even look at the rim. He just kicks it out and he's like, oh, I, I don't even know what to do with the ball. Like, I don't understand what it is, but he needs to be the guy that we saw when he was embarrassed about Mil Milwaukee's 47 point blowout. Like if they need to berate him in practice, they need to make him feel shunned and embarrassed every time before a game, they're going to have to do that because we need the guy that wants to make you suffer for what you made him feel. Yeah, I agree. So moving on to a team in the West now, the Warriors are three and three after starting 0-3. Steph Curry last night, career high 62 points against the Blazers. Wow, well, he said it, he took that personally, the Michael Jordan meme, and sheesh, Steph finally went off for more than 60, which is crazy to think that he's never gone off for more than 60 before, given his prolific scoring streaks in the past. Because they took him out in the third. Well, <laughs> usually and, the but, games were over. But I mean, the bad part is that, like, realistically, he couldn't rest much because the rest of the team was not producing as efficiently as him. And the third and the fourth, I think they were only outscoring the Trailblazers by like a point or two in each of those quarters. So three point shooting continues to be a problem for this team. Kelly Oubre continues to be a problem for this team. Draymond did come back, which has allowed them to begin moving the ball a little bit more outside of Steph. But overall, as a team, they're still only producing about 20 to 23 assists per game. So I would love to see them potentially get a guy like J.J. Redick at the deadline, potentially flip Oubre for J.J. Redick to give New Orleans another young guy, but then to take a vet onto their team. But they, they need... They need, honestly, a little bit more experience on the team. Somebody who's a three-point threat and somebody who can pass the ball well. It, to me, screams out J.J. Redick, Kyle Korver, those types of guys that could be on the team and be a compliment. Honestly, for me, I'm looking at this team, and even though Steph Curry just had 62 and they're 3-3, three and three, I have no faith that this team will make the playoffs. I really don't. Honestly, they needed to be at 500 for Steph Curry to have a career-high 62 points and for his cousin Damian Lee, the unheralded Damian Lee, who most people have never even heard about, for him to hit a, a random game winner. His brother -in -law. That's how they're three and three, his brother-in-law. See, I, that's how little I know about Damian Lee. <laughs> but just, it just goes to show you this team could easily be one in five. Easily. I mean... I just don't think that Stephen Curry is going to consistently put up 35 points a game. I think that he would actually need to score 35 points a game for this team to have a shot night in and night out. Cause I know that they're not going to get the shooting from Wiggins and from Oubre. I really have no faith that Wiggins is just going to magically find a three point stroke. And now his, his maybe sixth season in the NBA and Kelly Oubre, even though he showed flashes of maybe having that in his game, it's looking like he's losing confidence more and more each game because that percentage is just going down. It's plummeting. He's not improving. He is honestly just as bad as when he started the season. And I really don't think that they have a high IQ team offensively or defensively. And even if they were to pull off one of the trades that you mentioned, they would be awful defensively having a backcourt of Stephen Curry with JJ Redick or Stephen Curry with Kyle Korver. They would be carved up night in and night out, carved. This team, the way that it is currently constructed, doesn't have a shot. And I'm sorry to say that, Warriors fans. I loved what you guys had.
for many years and you guys made basketball fun, but this is not going to generally be a fun season for Stephen Curry unless James Wiseman takes the all-star leap this year, which I think he has that leap in him, but I don't, I don't know that it's fair to think that he's going to take it this season. So unfortunately, this is going to be one of those years where you just load up on another pick, guys, and you fight the good fight and you, you smile and you eventually, you know, you'll have a couple games where Curry does something incredible like this and you can be happy about that. Yeah, and I, I want to expand a little bit on the Kelly Oubre problem, but also open it up to people in the league, uh, rising stars in the league who have been atrocious, at least atrocious compared to what you'd expect them to be. So continuing with Kelly Oubre, he may be, but if he's not, he needs to be with a shooting coach in the gym every single night. And he should have to make 105 threes or how many ever Steph made in that video every single night before he's allowed to leave the gym. And he would never leave the gym if that were the case. He would have to be in the gym literally forever. You would have to honestly have him miss the games because he'd still be shooting. This guy that's does not what you chance. need. But that's what you but need. Like, but are you sure it, that's what you need though? Because the thing is, it seems like he also needs a coach to explain to him what a good shot even is. A lot of times he doesn't even know when to take the right shot. His his shot IQ, if it was 2K, would be like like a 40. His I shot selection is atrocious. It is, but it's also inexcusable for a guy who has a 32% career shooting percentage to be shooting 6% on the season. On a team <laughs> with the best shooter in the league. The best shooter in the league, by far. I mean, he's got to be getting some kind of spacing next to Stephen Curry, right? I mean, Stephen Curry's not too bad at spacing before. And James Wiseman is right. scoring the most points of any rookie in the league right now. So James Wiseman also can hit threes himself. Like, what is going on? There are a few times in life or in the NBA or in any sport where you can blame one person or a few people for the absolute demise on a team or a situation. And if Ubre doesn't pick it up and he's still on the Warriors come past the trade deadline and continues to shoot at 6%, it is very easy to point to Kelly Ubre as the problem and the reason why the Warriors did not make the playoffs. Look, Kelly Oubre, he has to be so happy about the COVID regulations and not having fans in the games because as nice as the Warriors fans are known to be, they would boo him. They, they must. He, he should must also be, be thankful really that he's not on the 76ers because if he was, it wouldn't matter if there were COVID restrictions. Oh, if they saw him on the streets him. anywhere. They would find him. Yep, they'd find his house for sure. All right, moving on to another player. Moving on to another player that was on the Warriors last season, D'Angelo Russell. Yeah. Honestly, D'Angelo Russell, to me, is such an interesting player because when you see him play, he does things that the eye test would suggest He's a pretty talented guy. I mean, he's a 6'5 guy who can handle the ball like that. He has the ability to basically do a poor man's Kyrie Irving impression where he's a good, bad shot maker. He's that guy that sometimes you need to be the guy who bails you out late in the shot clock. There's not a good shot anywhere to be had. You're going to need the guy to pull up and pull something out of nowhere. D'Angelo Russell can do that for you. He can occasionally catch fire, and we've seen him drop 50 before. So there is talent in there, but it's just maddening the inconsistency. It seems like he's got an issue with work ethic and health that are both hampering his development and the level of consistency that he's willing to have. I see his numbers, and it looks like he's regressing. He is down pretty much statistically in every category. But the thing is, he is coming back off an injury. He isn't playing with Carl Anthony Towns. And he has to also be in this awkward situation where he's sharing time and essentially role with a new rookie that was just drafted with the number two pick or the number one pick. And he basically is supposed to be drafted to be your successor. 
and here you are basically trying to like be you and also have to compete with this guy who's trying to be him and you both do the same thing. You don't have your best player either. It honestly doesn't make for a good situation. You have Glenn Taylor who owns the team. I mean, when has that ever helped? This is a team that honestly brings out the worst in you. I mean, I feel so bad for him. If Carl Anthony Townsend, D'Angelo Russell were together somewhere else with good coaching, they'd probably make the playoffs. But with a core that you build around D'Angelo and Carl Anthony Towns, if those are your two pieces that you're building around, I think that's a playoff level setup. It's just that if you have that setup in the Timberwolves, then it throws everything off. Yeah, he just looks off this season with the exception of two games. And I don't think you're able to say that when a guy is supposed to be the number two guy on a team and is a max contract player. He's also not getting to the line at all, which to me says that he's not driving to the basket and not playing the iso ball that he's played at the other stops that he's been at. But when he does get to the line, the seldom amount of times that he has, he's missing free throws. He's shooting 40% from free throws for the year, which. Yeah. Which is nuts to me. Cause he's always, he was literally at 87% the year before that. So he's either just not healthy or something's wrong, but I mean, think about it. He's also got Malik Beasley there. Who's also a player that likes to be ISO and is also trying to carve out a role and a name in the league. Clearly. You yeah. Have I just think they're playing selfish all, ball. Yeah, they're definitely playing selfish ball, 100%. But the thing is, they've always been those kinds of players. These guys have never been players that have been like regarded as ball movement players or playmakers for other people. That's not who they are. So honestly, it's a bad decision on the Timberwolves personnel, honestly, for the general manager to put those guys together. The general manager of the Timberwolves should know better than to have paired three guards that are essentially all that type of player that would never mesh. Yeah, I agree. So moving on to another uh, person who was doing well, very well last year, and then this year seems to have fallen into a funk, Pascal Siakam. Taking a look at his stats, he's playing significantly more minutes per game than he has in his career, but it's not really turning into any more wins or points. But I thought at the beginning of the season that the Raptors would regress overall and that they weren't going to be a great team. I also think that they're going to be sellers at the deadline and Kyle Lowry will be playing for another team come the trade deadline. Um, But they also had no notable free agent signings and they saw Ibaka and Gasol both leave which hurt them from a depth perspective. So no, no added players, loss of depth, and just overall not a great team top to bottom. So I think Pascal overall will turn it around statistically for the season, but I still see the Raptors as being a bottom of the barrel, maybe 10th, 11th uh, place team in the East. Yeah, to be honest with you, I was another person that thought that the Raptors were trending down. They have their best player in my mind in Kyle Lowry, one year older, one year more mileage, another deep playoff run on short rest. And then you have Pascal Siakam, who is essentially being asked to take on the role of franchise player and primary scorer for this team especially based on the contract that they paid him. And I really don't think that he's that guy. I think that Pascal Siakam, if you really do want to be a championship team, he should only be your third best player. If he's your second best player or first best player, then you're probably not going to have enough in my mind. I I know that he's a nice player, maybe all-star level some seasons. I wouldn't say he's an all-star every year level player. He's one of those guys who's an all-star some years. I don't know how much better he can realistically get. He already gives you great defense, does awesome at switching for perimeter pick and rolls and also defending in the paint. He's solid from mid-range, can even hit some three-pointers, has decent little moves attacking the basket. 
But at this point, he's basically physically developed. He's who he is. He's 26. He'll probably physically fill out maybe for another one or two more years at most. But I think you're basically seeing close to the ceiling of what this player is, or at least what he was last year, a guy who's going to give you the low 20s and maybe at best nine, 10 rebounds a game. And there's no shame in that. But I just don't think that that's enough in today's NBA when you have so many other teams that have two and three players like Pascal Siakam on their teams and rosters. So I just don't think that they have enough to compete with the elite talent in the league and the chemistry that they have and the great coaching they have can only do so much when you're just outmatched talent-wise. Fred Van Vliet, as clever and smart of a player as he is, I've always had concerns about him being able to be a volume scorer night in and night out just because there's going to be a lot of nights that he's just physically outmatched. There are going to be some matchups where he's able to get loose and give you a ton of points, and he can go off for potentially even 40 every now and then. But there's just going to be teams that you face that they're just going to have an elite-level athleticism that is a gear above what Fred Van Vliet can reach, unfortunately, for him. And they've committed to these these players as their long-term pillars. So I just think that the Raptors are overall trending down for their future. A team that's going to do well enough to maybe make the playoffs, but not really realistically make any noise, and as a result, not get any high picks. So we'll have to see what happens with this team. It looks like they're going to yeah. be stuck here for a little while. And I think, prediction, uh, Masson Ogri is out at the end of the season. Last year's contract, yeah, I, wouldn't be surprised. I think he's going to be gone. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. All right. So want to move now to our rookie checkup. So who have you been impressed with lately? Honestly, one of my favorite players to watch this year has been Tyrese Halliburton. He's not really putting up the kinds of numbers that would blow you away, per se. He's only putting up 10.6 points per game and 4.4 assists per game. So it's not like he's doing anything too crazy. But if you've watched him actually play, he plays with such an elite level maturity, you would never believe that this guy was a rookie. He's also coming in and being asked to be an aggressive lead guard who was taken with high expectations, but at the same time play behind their franchise player, Darren Fox, who plays the same exact position and still be able to fit within that concept and make a positive impact without being overbearing. And to find that fine line as a rookie is really hard to do. If you look at his PER, which is one of my favorite metrics when I'm evaluating a player, his PER is really elite for a rookie at 18.79, which means that he's giving you production that is above starter level quality is what that means. And all his percentages are great. One of the biggest critiques about him coming in was can he actually score at the next level? He's six foot five and he's got good size and a solid handle, especially at the point guard position. But his jump shot was always something that people had a question about. The form looks funky. It doesn't look like a consistent release. And there was many questions on if he could consistently knock down from deep in the NBA when elite defenders are closing out with a jump shot like that. But up to this point, he's hitting 50% of his threes. He's shooting 87.5% from the free throw line. Both are good long-term indicators of future success in terms of shooting percentage. So you would expect with an increase in volume and usage, based on these percentages, he would probably be the kind of contributor who could potentially have all-star level potential in him. And the maturity that he plays with on defense and offense, he's already made big shots in clutch moments. It's been excellent. I'm, I've Honestly, I think that it was a steal what they got in Tyrese Halliburton. And they actually have a problem now because they're going to have to decide if they want to get the most out of Tyrese Halliburton, they're probably going to have to part ways with the Aaron Fox, even though they've already committed to him long-term. So Tyrese Halliburton, potentially a player that could be on the move for some trade chips. Why would they trade a great young player on a cheap contract? Because they're the Kings. You never know. They do stuff like this. So well, Divac is out, so hopefully it. their new GM is a little bit oh, more prudent. 
Yeah, Vladi Divak, the guy who got fired because he personally knew and played and watched Luka Doncic. I mean, the guy literally knew him better than anyone else, anyone else in the entire league. And he comes out and says, no, I'm not going to take him, actually. I'm going to take Marvin Bagley. And then Luka Doncic obviously goes on to be a perennial MVP and or a perennial MVP-level player. After that, I mean, it's inexcusable. You literally had the inside scoop. That's like having insider trading information. They're literally giving you basically like the answers to the test and you still fail the test. You knew more than anyone. How could you have messed that up? Yeah, definitely a head-scratching move on his part. My rookies that I've been impressed with, I have three. Uh, two of them, I think, aren't really a surprise, and one of them is. So the first one is James Wiseman. Um, he's been just crushing it on the Warriors and stepping into the number two role with Clay out, with Draymond being out. As a rookie, he's averaging second uh, most points with 11.67 per game also averaging 6.5 rebounds, which leads rookies per game, and then is also averaging uh, 1.67 blocks. So he's doing extremely well uh, as a rookie, and he's also not afraid to take a shot from three. So if they continue to develop his three-pointer, and he can be a stretch five who also is dominant in the paint blocking, uh, he's going to be a powerful force in the years to come. The other player that impressed me and is impressing me even though I think that the start of the season you and I were both very low on him has been LaMelo he is second in rookies for player efficiency rating at a little over 17 and he is averaging third most points with 11 and a half per game second in assists with 4.1 and he's in top 10 in rebounds uh, with 4.3 per game so LaMelo doing very well from a rookie standpoint and then the third one, honestly, the stat was the thing that impressed me most for him, but Precious Achua's uh, averaging the highest free field goal percentage of any rookie at 64%. So Precious is being very efficient with his shot selection. And if he can get into the Heat's lineups more frequently, then hopefully his scoring will grow up from the 7.8 points that it is currently. Yeah, I honestly loved all the picks that you made. I've been really impressed with this rookie class overall. I was pretty low on it going into the draft, especially seeing Anthony Edwards at the top. I was always really low on him, but I've been really impressed with guys that maybe I wasn't as high on initially. Like you said, Precious Achua, James Wiseman. I think James Wiseman has the highest ceiling of anyone in the draft. That guy is a, a star in the making. If he can stay healthy, and continue to progress the way that he looks out there. He basically looks like the kind of center that any team would want. And he would basically fit alongside literally anyone. You could pair him with anyone and it would work. And honestly, the sky's the limit for this class. These guys all look pretty good. They're already contributing early in the season. Yep. So let's move now to our segment. What's the verdict where you will ask me, uh, given a situation, whether somebody is innocent or guilty. All right, sounds good. So first one, Marvin Bagley's dad tweeted that he wants his son traded ASAP because he's not being played enough and not being used the right way. In reality, is it Marvin's play that is the reason for his lack of usage or is his dad right? What's the verdict? You mean Marvin that's better than Luka Doncic, Marvin? because he is regressed in every single statistical category except for rebounds this year. And how do you expect to play more if you don't perform well? Luke Walton came out before the start of the season and said, we're going to play Marvin at the four and the five. We're going to experiment with him in different sets, which means Luke Walton as a coach was trying to put Marvin in several situations for him to succeed. And I don't understand why he's allowing his dad to turn into like a LeVar troll. Clearly that's not working out for LeVar anymore. And Marvin, I don't think, is even as good of a player as Lamelo or Lonzo at this point. So he's completely guilty. And having this sort of attitude as well as this diva persona with his dad in the background is not going to help his case whatsoever. 
Yeah, I agree with you. The other thing when you look at him too is you see a player that's essentially trying to force his way into a bigger role. He's not essentially getting low usage. He's just not converting on any of his attempts. He is shooting 12 field goals per game in the 25 minutes that he gets. He's just converting 37.5 of those, which is completely inexcusable for a guy who is 6'11", and plays the power forward center spot, you would imagine this guy's probably getting the majority of his shots near the basket when you're that position and that size. Also, his greatest strength was his athleticism for his size. With those strengths, you should expect to be getting a lot of shots at the basket or at least a solid amount of free throw attempts. And it seems like he's forcing a bunch of shots for mid-range and three, trying to prove that he can hit those. And... I really don't know what he's doing. He's he's essentially trying to force his way into a bigger role by just holding on to that shooter-shoot adage, but he's not really a shooter, though. He's got to play to his strengths and start to use what he's got instead of trying to prove to everyone that he's a stretch four or a stretch five. So definitely it's, it's him, guilty. And look – Conversely, at somebody who you were high on to start the season, I think he was your most improved player of the year prediction um, in Christian Wood, who instead of complaining about his role or asking for more minutes or wanting to have a bigger piece, gets a chance with the Pistons last year after Blake Griffin goes down, completely shows out, and now is in Houston, and like you said on the last episode, is probably the best teammate from a stylistic perspective that James Harden has ever had and is having a career year and honestly is looking like a top 20 player in the league. And he was undrafted several years ago. So same position, same sort of potential usage. One of them is complaining about their role and not getting more minutes. The other one is not complaining and is a bona fide star, could be superstar by the end of the year in this league. What it comes to, it's a maturity issue for sure. But moving on from Marvin Bagley, Trey Young is now second in the league at 11.7 free throw attempts per game. He was in the lead just a game ago, but is this a result of defenders' inability to guard Young because of his mastery on offense, or has Trey Young simply mastered the art of flopping? What's the verdict? I abstain. I think I'd have to uh, plead the fifth on this one because... I don't know that Trey Young is guilty of mastering the art of flopping because I feel like when you start to become more of a superstar and you start to be the leading scorer in the league, then you demand more calls from officials. But then at the same time, you also start to flop a little bit more because you know the calls are going to go your way. So I think it is the perfect storm for him that he's transcended into this elite scorer status. I think second behind only James Harden, who probably has mastered the art of flopping. So I think it's a natural progression of scores get better as scores get better, especially smaller scores like Trey Young. Then they start to get more respect from officials. And as they gain that respect, they start to take advantage of that a little bit. You also have to think, James Harden, who notoriously is the worst flopper in the NBA, went from 16.8 points with the Thunder and six free throw attempts per game to 26 points per game with the Rockets a season later and had 10 free throw attempts per game. Now James is in the vicinity of 10.7 to 12 uh, free throw attempts per game. So James clearly, as he became a better scorer, and continued to dominate his opponents, I think started to become more of a flopper. I think you're seeing the same thing with Trey Young and officials are starting to respect him more as a player and a scorer. Yeah, the other aspect of it too is, I, honestly, it's, it's hard to say at this point if flopping or drawing fouls is just so much a part of the game at this point that you can't even call it flopping. Is it just a skill now? I've seen people... You know how there used to be signature dunks or like a signature crossover? People are starting to develop signature flop drawing moves, like signature ways of getting foul calls. Like Harden has the classic arm hook hand in the cookie jar foul where if you reach in, 
he immediately rips upward, rips through your hands and pretends he was going to shoot, gets that one. Then you have Kevin Durant with his long arms. You, you can't avoid the rip through. If you extend your hand forward, he's going to lift him up and immediately get that foul call. And it seems that Trey Young now, I heard someone mention this, but I started looking for it and I noticed it was true. He's mastered the art of the short stop foul. It seems that he's basically at a player of his size. When he runs the pick and roll, he essentially gets by his man and he feels the defender trying to catch up to him that he's passed on this pick. And once he feels that the defender has kind of caught up, he'll stop short as if he was going to go for a shot. The defender, not expecting this, bumps into him kind of like a rear end. And of course, just like in real life, if you're the one who rear ends, then the foul is on you. And essentially, he does this almost five and six times a game when he runs the pick and roll. And I've, honestly, it's true. Like, if you, if you look at it, this guy has engineered a new way to draw fouls. Yeah, and he'll continue to develop that arsenal. And I'm sure that he'll take pieces from Harden and Harden will take from him. And the rest of the players in the league will also adopt from them. So yeah, final, at some point, we got to scale it back with the fouls. At some point. But final segment of the show is I want to call some witnesses to the stand, have some guests on the show. So Kelly Oubre, we want to have you on the show. We want you to explain your shooting slump, testify as to why you're not contributing to the Warriors, and explain your case as to why you're going to be a better player for the rest of the year. Do you have any witnesses you want to call? I'd like to call Damian Lillard to the stand for this new diss track that's coming out. I'd love to know what his opinion is on a young gun like Anthony Edwards, who seemingly has already proven himself in this league, calling out someone like Damian Lillard and whether he's even worthy of a diss track response. Should you even acknowledge this, Damian? Is this even worth your time? Well, with that, court is adjourned. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stirr.